when <clears throat> last night when Jill spoke about the cycles of practice, uh, purification and purity, it reminded me of this quotation from Nyoshal Ken Rinpoche, who was a wonderful Dzogchen Lama. He said, the main purpose of these Dharma teachings is to find out what is the nature of the non-deluded mind as well as how the deluded mind works. I love that because it's like both things are what's going on. I find that's kind of like all the noble truths. What's the nature of the non-deluded mind, the third and the fourth, as well as how the deluded mind works, one and two, right? Next Meditation practices work to uncover our innate wisdom, purity, by recognizing the obscurations for the changing, insubstantial appearances they are, thus revealing what has always been available. I love that. I've always loved that. I feel like it describes the whole breadth of our practice. Everything that goes on in our practice fits in one of those. And so sometimes we're talking, and what we're seeing, of course, is the nature of the non-deluded mind. And other times we're exploring, investigating, learning about the nature of how the deluded mind works. So that's the level I'm talking about tonight how the deluded mind works, but exploring it, bringing satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom, interest to the experience of these obscurations that, that, that he's talking about, exploring it with mindfulness and wisdom, this is what reveals the reality and lets these obscurations dissolve, not hating them, trying to get rid of them. So, what I want to talk about tonight is the second noble truth, tanha, craving, thirst. This, the Buddha, the second noble truth. This is the noble truth of the origin of dukkha. It is this craving, the word in Pali is tanha, and I'll get to that because that's uh, specific. It is this craving which produces renewal of being, repeated existence, and is bound up with delight and lust and seeks pleasure now here and now there. Namely, craving for sense pleasures, craving for existence, for becoming, and craving for non-becoming, non-existence. I love that because I think it really encapsulates part of our... uh, entrancement with craving because it is bound up with delight and lust and seeks pleasure now here and now there, right? Oh yeah, let's look here, let's look there. What's the problem with that? That's how to live a life. So the three for new for sense pleasures, craving for becoming, for for estates, and for non-existence, non-becoming. So some in some people the craving describe craving as not just uh, greed, not just the clinging, but also the pushing away, the aversion, both sides of that on this level of the second noble truth. I'm going to be talking about exploring it tonight as tanha, as thirst, 
as craving as clinging. So, so this talk really, I'm seeing it as an invitation to us to really get interested and bring our uh, wisdom mind to bring mindfulness and Dhamma Vichaya, investigation of states, which is the beginning of wisdom, to bring this into the experience of craving, clinging whenever we notice it. Just as you might bring it to calm, as you might bring it to an interesting sound. Really no difference. And that's how we really start to see uh, its nature. So I want to first talk a bit about language. Tanha, thirst, this word that's used in Pali as the cause of dukkha, <clears throat> the second noble truth. You know, it's, we translate it as craving or clinging, and when we're talking in general in English, we talk about it as, as desire, as wanting, right? But this is a very broad word in English, and it covers a range of states of heart and mind. Tanha, quite specific, translated as thirst, is kind of the closest to it. And I, to me, anyway, this has been really important and helpful. Because often I hear people talk about, you know, um, skillful desires and unskillful desires. You know, and a, a desire, this is in English, using the word, say, desire. Or wanting, you know, a skillful desire to cultivate the Dhamma or to take care of your family or whatever, an unskillful one will, you know, make up the list. But to me, this completely misses the point, and it's incredibly confusing. Because the the quality of tanha, of thirst in the mind, it's not about the object. It's the state that's arising, the mental state that's arising in the mind heart in a moment. That's the obscuration that limits, that, dis- that distorts perception, that limits the range of mind, that disrupts, that hides peace. But as long as we focus on the object, we don't really get that. We keep looking out, we keep, and then we get really confused because. So let me go into the the language a little bit, and then I'll talk about that. So thirst is this very specific yearning, leaning, and wanting. It's like like it, and it strengthens. It's uh, I read somewhere in in a commentary. It's like the thirst, the craving, is like the a thief going into a house and leaning in for something, and when they grasp it and take hold of it, that's clinging, that's grasping. So craving into grasping. Happens pretty quick, right? So when we're talking about attachment, that's grasping. But it starts with the thirst. And so sometimes people say, well, what's wrong with wanting to take care of your family? What's evil about wanting to go on a vacation or wanting to have a nice meal or, you know, or wanting enlightenment? And that's where we get all confused. It's as if, well, if we don't have thirst... Tanha, how can we do anything? We just sit around without uh, wanting an aversion. And you might laugh, but I can't tell you how many people have asked that question. As if that's the only motivation for action. 
It may seem like it sometimes here, but it really isn't. <laughs> there's another word, and there's many words. I'm not a poly scholar, but there's another word. That candle, is it? Is that safe or just going to smell? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, a word in Pali, chanda, chanda, which is uh, ethically neutral, you could say. Whereas thirst, tanha, it's never like skillful tanha, right? It's one of the uh, distortions. But chanda is ex- ethically neutral, and it kind of can be like a desire to do, an excitement, a willingness, an energy to do something. So it could be dhamma chanda. So, you know, the excitement, the interest, the willingness to practice Dhamma, Dhamma Chanda, and enthusiasm for the Dhamma, totally wholesome, right? It can uh, serve as a, a motivation for doing neutral things one needs to do, taking care of the family. And it can also be unwholesome, unskillful. It can be the excitement of sense pleasures. And actually, when we talk about the hindrances, the first hindrance is actually quite specific. It isn't loba, greed. It's kama chanda, which is the excitement of sense pleasures. Kama is sense pleasures. Chanda is this excitement, this enthusiasm for sense pleasures. That's the first hindrance. That definitely not skillful. So just to give you a sense, this is another motivation, a mental quality that motivates action. And the intention, that moment of intention that in the mind, that mental uh, you could say the mental uh that gives rise to action, right? Before any action, it's accompanied by and part of the, is, is fed by, is a supported or proximate cause of various mental states that are present in the chaitana. So we could do something out of greed. We could do the same thing out of compassion. We could do it out of a neutral chanda, taking care of the family, all kinds of things. So you get a sense what I mean. So if we say, well, what's wrong? It's a good, it's a good desire to want X, Y, and Z. It's really kind of missing the boat that the point is really to look inside and see what's, what's going on here. Let's explore the quality when it arises in the heart and mind, in the body. So it's a, this is, is the invitation, hopefully, to us to just to bring in this potential to get interested rather than fearing or hating or not wanting to see. Uh, craving, thirst, greed, loba is the overarching um, kalesa when it arises. So it's like when we, when we recognize a moment that there's this thirst, this craving or pushing away, turn the attention back. It's like, let's explore what is its nature? How does it arise? How does it behave? How do we behave when we're under the thrall of, of um, craving? Just to keep watching, to keep noticing. Why, how do we get so seduced? so enchanted, or are we actually seduced or enchanted? So this is really what, uh, this is an invitation to us to explore. And as we, just bearing in mind, we're just exploring, we're not saying we hate craving and we're going to stop it with an act of will, because first that doesn't work. 
And second, that mostly would come from aversion. I'm not craving anymore. And when we think of renunciation, of giving up the things craved, in my mind, it's kind of our, we tend to have just superficially kind of a backwards notion of craving and renunciation. So that, you know, our idea, as, as it's described in the way the Buddha writes the, first, the second noble truth, we think of craving as accompanied by delight. We take refuge in craving, finding pleasure, now here, now there. This is where we habitually go for refuge when we're not happy or when we're looking for happiness. I mean, without realizing it, right? Just, yeah, go, let's get this next good thing. Let's get this next nice thing. And we're looking for the thing and not noticing that little movement of, yeah, I want this, I want this. You know, it doesn't have to be so strong it blows your head apart. But sometimes it does. <laughs> say to Upandita said once, I'm going to say it. Jack Cornfield hates it when I say this, but Upandita said, I think it's great. He said, lust cracks the brain. <laughs> when you're really feeling it, you're really driven by it. That's how, and I just lust for anything. I don't just mean sexual lust. I've got to have that last piece of chocolate cake or I'll die. It cracks the brain. But without recognizing that, without turning around and looking, this is our, our refuge for pleasure. And we may, and yet this is what leads us into complications, confusion, and suffering. Renunciation sounds like, uh, you know, it's um, a penance, dry, dusty, non-joy punishment. You know, something, I have to give up this thing I love and I'm going to be miserable. But renunciation isn't about the objects, it's about a renouncing the greed that keeps us bound to samsara. And when it's wisdom that renounces, not an act of will. And when wisdom sees clearly and it just puts it down... Ah, the simplicity is joy, it's peace, it's ease. The renunciation, it's a a movement of the motivation, is it, not external. So the renunciation is that the the greed, the, the craving has gone. So you don't miss the thing because you don't want it anymore. It's peace, you know. It's really a whole different thing. So... To just to give some thoughts about exploring it. Just to come back again to any object that we want to use the English word. And maybe when you see what's wrong with wanting to experience the sunset, what's wrong with wanting to have dinner or take a walk or have enlightenment or have another piece of chocolate cake. What's wrong with any of that, right? And as long as we stay in that kind of rational, what's wrong with the chocolate cake? There's nothing, you know, what's wrong with the sunset? We're missing it, and that's our habit. So when you just feel it, turn around and see, because it might not be craving. It might be just a sense of the sitting's over. You walk outside with a sense of ease and presence and appreciate the sunset. You go out and you see tonight is clouds. There isn't a sunset. You don't beat your head against the wall. You don't say the day is ruined. Oh, okay, it's like this now. You come in. If you go out and it's like, oh, that was the best part of the day and there's no sunset, that's a clue. A clue (laughs) that there might have been thirst. We need clues like this. 
And at that point, not to start berating or judging yourself. It's, oh, great, turn around and notice. Bring your wise attention. What does it feel like in the mind, in the body? What's the experience that we could be calling thirst or craving or wanting or whatever? What does the state feel like in the heart, in the mind? Bring satipanya to it, mindfulness wisdom, just the same as you would any mental state. Don't make it somehow more different. It's coming and going. It may come a lot, but it goes as often as it comes. Absolutely, as often as it comes, it goes. So you can really notice that. So some of the things I notice about it, and not only me, and you might or might not. So these are, I'm throwing out ideas, but look and see for yourself. That's really the thing. That when there's craving, this thirst, or grasping in the mind, we don't recognize accurately. I think we've said that before. The Buddha says that about both dosa, ill will, aversion, and clinging, and delusion. We don't recognize accurately. The perception is distorted. We can't see clearly. And we can get like a kind of um, like a tunnel vision. We just don't really see what's happening. And our mind gets narrowed. Our field of awareness can go from just peaceful and fine to narrow, focused, and me and other very, very quickly, very strongly. I can feel physically almost like the mind and the body, almost like it's leaning forward, or if it's the craving of pushing away, pushing away. But just, I can feel a tightness. You may not, I'm not saying, but really looking to see what it is and notice that sense of contraction, of narrowing, of not seeing clearly so we don't recognize the object clearly. We think whatever we're wanting, the the Tibetans have a saying that wanting puts feathers on the object. You know, kind of makes it all pretty, right? You ever notice that when there's wanting? The thing wanted, it seems like it's so nice, whether it's a person or a piece of fruit or a vacation or whatever. They're like, this is, it looks so pretty, you know? You know, when you first get in a relationship with someone, everything looks so, they're so nice. It's so, a friend of mine was saying years ago, they'd been in a relationship, she'd been with her husband for a while, and I said, well, how is it now? She goes, it's good, it's okay, but the love eyes have fallen off. (laughs) (laughs) She didn't mean they didn't love each other, but, you know, that the perception, everything's beautiful, everything's nice. That craving piece wasn't there. So starting to explore that. Tejaniya says the way that um, craving and also aversion distort perception, I like the way he describes it. He says, Panya, or wisdom, recognizes the natural characteristics, the three characteristics of, of any object, including craving. So when something's met with wisdom, any object that's arising... Any object that can be known of mind or any of the five other physical senses that arises when met with mindfulness wisdom without the distortions of greed, hatred, delusion, that is how the three characteristics, the impermanent aspect, the not-self aspect, the unreliable, unsatisfactory aspect that we've spoken about, 
those start to reveal themselves because that's an aspect of any object when met with wisdom. That's why in terms of the steadiness of awareness leading to wisdom, we don't have to have a special object for that to happen. But, so it reveals the natural characteristics of the object. Delusion, any of the three, of the three roots of suffering, it covers up these natural characteristics. That's what Annie was talking about with the vipalasas, the distortions of perception. Delusion covers up the natural characteristics, but it does not cover up the object. So we still see that piece of chocolate cake without recognizing its inherent unreliability, (laughs) that it's going to be gone really soon, and we may not feel as good after it's gone as we think we're going to feel, especially if it's our second or third piece. (laughs) I heard Andrea Levine saying once how you can't rely on your mind. She said, your mind will say, have another piece of cake. It's good for you. You'll be happy. So you have another piece, and then your mind goes, I wouldn't have done that if I were you. (laughs) So delusion covers up these characteristics. We see permanence. We see, you know, beauty where there's not. We, We see satisfaction where there won't be. But the object we still see, and that's where we get confused. So when the insight comes, when wisdom's there, those scales drop off. Without that, so seeing how wanting, how craving, it limits the mind, it limits the perception, it narrows our field, and it leads us to all kinds of actions based on this perception. I wanted to read... Oh, here it is, yes. The Buddha said, greed, hatred, delusion, so we're talking here about the tanha, the greed, may be understood as a maker of measurement in that it imposes limitations upon the range and depth of the mind, of the citta. It narrows it into this object and what we want. So I'll give you a story for an example. This is, (laughs) a friend today was asking for like one of my, you called it top 10, you know, old moldy stories. This isn't it, but it's another one of the same vintage. So it's for you, the same vintage, which I normally would have retired it, but it really fits, it fits. Just to see how craving distorts, how it limits, how it gets us involved in all kinds of activities based on craving. So maybe it may have been 30 years ago. I was uh, teaching in uh, um, Yucca Valley in the desert in Southern California with friends. We used to teach there every year. I really liked it there. And this one afternoon, it was a three-week retreat at that time. So one afternoon, in the middle of the afternoon, it was quite hot that day. And another friend who's teaching us, teaching with, we were sitting talking, and uh, someone had come to visit us. I have, I have no memory who, but from outside, not one of the meditators. And we were sitting, talking, having a perfectly friendly, nice conversation. And at one point, this person said, oh, they had just come, on, driven through Joshua Tree nearby town, and there was a new little restaurant, and he had a milkshake, and it was really incredibly good. So my friend and I were sitting, we didn't say a word, we just looked at each other. 
we knew we had about an hour before we had to be at the next sitting. And without saying a word, both of us, our energy and interest in the conversation with this third person ended. <laughs> really ended. And we, we, without being completely rude, we ended the conversation and got and ran to the car and <laughs> headed to Joshua Tree. As I remember, we got there, it was only five minutes or so, we got there at like five past three and the place had closed at three. So we're like, ah. Oh. But then this is where craving really takes over. It had already taken over. It narrowed everything. But it had been a perfectly pleasant, peaceful afternoon, became driven by, you know, a goal. But notice, this is one of the things I notice about craving. It feels enlivening. It feels really natural. It's like, oh, you know, great. I have a mission. Have you ever heard? Yeah, now I have a mission. Well, sometimes the mission is from compassion, but a lot of times it's just from greed. You're having a quiet afternoon at home. Oh, I could go to the store and buy that thing. Oh, good, I've got something to do. Notice that. Or notice I'm just sitting and it's all peaceful. Let me check the tennis scores. There's not even a tennis match happening that I care about. But let me just check. Just for something to do. Something to want. Gives a feeling of being alive. This is one of the seductions also. So that was already going on. Anyway, so it was closed. So we said, well, let's turn around and drive past the center and back into Yucca Valley. Maybe there's something there. We had both been coming here for many years. We knew very well there was nothing there. (laughs) We knew, but still. So we're driving. I was driving. He was looking, and I'm driving. And as we get into Yucca Valley, and our time's getting short, right, because we have to be back for a sitting, he looks over and goes, oh, great, yogurt cafe. Go over there. Go over there. And I looked, where? And he pointed, he pointed. It said, urgent care. (laughs) This is a true story. (laughs) This is right. You're laughing because you can recognize. This is what craving does. Lung Po Dun, who was a Thai a forest monk, a disciple of Ajahn Mun, he gave a, a sweet reinterpretation of the Four Noble Truths. He says, The mind that goes out in order to satisfy its moods is the cause of suffering. Second Noble Truth. The result that comes from the mind going out in order to satisfy its moods is Dukkha, the First Noble Truth. The mind going out to satisfy his moods is the cause of suffering. The result that comes from all the hoo-ha running around to get your milkshake is the unreliable, the dukkha. The mind seeing the mind clearly is the path leading to the cessation of dukkha, the fourth truth. The result of the mind seeing the mind clearly is the cessation of suffering, the third truth. That's what we're doing here with our practice, seeing the body and the mind clearly, moment after moment. And a lot of moments, there's beautiful, the wholesome states, the seven factors of awakening, etc. And in a lot of other moments, there's craving or aversion. The moment of mindfulness that can lead to wisdom can meet them both equally really being present. Because as we've said, the mindfulness that isn't 
isn't distorted by kalesa, that feeds the wholesome. Mindfulness that's really present with kalesa, but without, um, that's present with the, the clinging, for example, the wanting, but the mindfulness itself isn't distorted by wanting, that's not feeding the, the craving. It's starving it. That doesn't make it go away. And this is what, to be really clear, you know, steady mindfulness does not make the experience go away. That's where we can get so-called, we think mindfulness is the agent to dissolve. It's wisdom. It's wisdom that sees through the kalesis and that really stops feeding it, the causes, and it dissolves. But the steady mindfulness is a condition that allows the wisdom to arise. The Buddha spoke about, I want to go into a little bit, as he's uh, talking again, as, uh, this clinging where the cravings strengthen, he talks about uh, four areas of clinging. I just want to briefly touch on some of these. There are these four types of clinging. Clinging to sensual pleasures, talked about that a lot. Clinging to views, clinging to rules and observances, and clinging to Sakaya Ditti, personality view. These areas are four really common moment-to-moment experiences that we get caught up in clinging to. So the first one, sense pleasures, I'm not going to talk about it a lot because we've really mentioned it quite a bit under the hindrances. But even though we're quite aware of how seductive the the moving into the clinging to pleasant sense experience can be, we still can kind of not recognize that that's happening sometimes. Not quite see, as I was saying, how we can fall into that kind of unaware taking refuge in holding to sense pleasure for happiness, for ease, for peace. When we talk about renouncing, we often talk about, as I said before, renouncing the pleasant sense objects. And that's certainly a path of simplifying. So there's less things to want. We may be able to notice. I'm saying wanting. I should be saying thirst or craving. Notice it more. But again, it's about what's going on in the heart-mind. Again, Tejaniya said something funny. Someone was saying to him, oh, in your after you, you know, became a monk, after you were, uh, had lived a full life and such a renunciation and living so simple, and he won't put up with that kind of stuff. And he just said, hey, you can be a monk or a nun, and maybe there's only two or three things that you're able to want, but you can have the same degree of clinging to just those two or three things as you had to everything else in your life. <laughs> you can get rid of the objects, but if you don't, Look at the clinging, it can still be going on. Or you can get rid of the object and just sit there and want what you don't have. So turning around and looking, renouncing the desire, the attachment that keeps one bound is samsara. That's what it's about. That's where the freedom comes in. So in terms of uh, exploring craving and how it works, I think we've mentioned this, but Bhikkhu Bodhi 
well, the Buddha talks about this, but Bhikkhu Bodhi describes it as three movements in the unfolding process of insight around craving. It's with everything, but we'll start it with sense desires. So really recognizing the gratification. It's the gratification, the danger, and the escape. It's like three kind of unfolding aspects of exploration, of wisdom, really bringing satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom, to the experience next time you notice some real wanting coming up about any sense desire. And it could be as simple as wanting to look at somebody. I mean, really simple. That's a sense desire, seeing. Have you had that experience where someone's walking past and you just want to look so badly? It's like you can't stand not to look. Have you had that experience? Sometimes you really can't not look. And then you look. And did that make you happy? (laughs) My guess, my guess, based on some extensive experience, is more often than not it led into mana, conceit. Oh, that one, they're better than me. Oh, that one, look at them. Oh, no, I'm doing much better than I thought. You know, that's, oh, or, or we just say, oh, look at, oh, they're nice socks. And then, and then, oh, look at the bees, look at the, you know. It's rare that you look and go, oh, yes, craving. Yes, pleasant. Yes, you know, it's gone, gone. So that's a little side effect. But noticing the gratification. Okay, so in that seeing, there wasn't so much gratification. <laughs> So maybe pick something, there is some gratification, because there is. Of course we appreciate the beautiful. We've talked about this before, so I'm not going to beat it to death, but we're aware of that. And I love it that the Buddha recognized that. Of course there's gratification. Of course there's sense pleasure, or we wouldn't crave it. We wouldn't get attached. He's very clear about it. And the danger, of course, we've talked about that too. The danger being the impermanent, unreliable aspect. That's one danger. That's the danger he talks about. You can't count on it. I'm adding another danger, danger not exactly, but it's really delusion, that when we're in the thrall of clinging, we don't recognize the natural peace and ease of mind and heart. We can't. The clinging is what blocks it. We're clinging, we're wanting because we want to be happy, and the clinging itself is blocking, recognizing that. That's really the poignant nature of clinging. So I'm putting that under danger. You know, It keeps us looking in the wrong direction for the peace and ease that's available when we're really awake and aware and present and just fully here in the moment. Why are moments when there's a sense of you're just mindful. You're just walking, nothing special. But And it's not like a big neon sign going off, but it's just so fulfilling isn't even the right word. But I think you know it. It's just so nice. What is it? It's the heart-mind that's really present and not clinging and not aversive and not needing anything else for to make this moment complete. That's available anytime. There's wisdom and awareness in the mind and not lost in clinging. Clinging could be an object that mindfulness wisdom recognizes, the same as recognizing a foot lifting. It's possible. So I'm saying that so you don't like get afraid of or aversive to recognizing clinging or aversion. 
just recognizing it, the mind that's clearly recognizing, the moment of mindfulness, the mindfulness itself isn't clinging. It's recognizing. When it is clinging, that's when we're all caught up and we don't know. So the, the gratification, the danger, and the escape. The escape. But the oh, back to the danger, another danger. The really addictive quality. Delusory, but also addictive. It reminds me the way it works. My brother used to have a hound dog. It was just a pet. But hound dogs are certain kinds of dogs that are really bred for hunting. But of course, this poor dog lived in downtown Atlanta. It didn't get to hunt. But it was its nose, its sense of scent, so highly developed that when he'd let it out in the backyard, it would just be running around the border with its nose in the ground, smelling everything that any animal had been there completely driven. And in the house, too, if anyone new came in or if there was any, if they left any piece of food or any kind of dirty clothes anywhere where, where he could get into it, his nose would just take him right there. And you could see it wasn't like he was a bad dog. It was like just that pulling, that pulling of the nose. It just ruled him. And it feels like that to me with wanting. It's, yes, what could I want? What's the next thing? What could I want? It keeps us leaning into samsara. You know, I think maybe someone has said there's a Tibetan description of samsara as the urge to correct. Let's just get it a little better, a little better, a little better, and that's endless. A little better, a little better. Oh, this is good, but if you just did that, it could be a little better. And we keep believing it, even when we know. We keep believing it. So another little story from I was talking with a very wise friend who's well aware of everything I'm saying and more. And we're talking, this person has a habit of every day after lunch has to have a couple of cookies, certain kinds of cookies, only certain kinds. Of course, we all like what we like. And we were joking around about clinging. He said, it's not clinging. There's no suffering in that. There's no danger in that. And I said, well, what about when you don't get a cookie? He goes, oh, I'll always get a cookie. (laughs) That's what we think. I don't have to look at it too close because it's all going to come around. I can always get another one. The escape. The escape isn't getting rid of all the cookies in the world. The escape is the steady mindfulness that allows for the clear seeing of what's going on. So having to have that, I'm just making that up, having to have that cookie. If there's a day I get up and I can just feel that wanting, the driven to have the cookie, and there's no cookie, and I can just be with it, steady mindfulness, 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 and at some point the wisdom can, oh, look at that, the suffering is the wanting. It's not not having the cookie. It's the wanting. And at that point, the escape is really when that wisdom just dissolves. The wanting dissolves, not as an act of will. I cannot eat the cookie as an act of will. I can't make the clinging to it, the idea of it, go away as an act of will. But by really tuning into the wanting, feel it, be with it, watch it, often, often it dissolves from the wisdom. Oh, that doesn't make sense. And either the wanting dissolves or it stops arising because it doesn't make sense in the light of wisdom.
And this is like, it's a huge relief. And it's really something we can trust because it doesn't mean you have to be so incredibly on it and intelligent, figure it all out. You just have to keep being mindful, (laughs) morning, noon, and night, (laughs) really interested in everything that's coming up, the beautiful and the difficult. Reality reveals itself. This is the escape, the, uh, the dissolution or the putting down of the clinging. So the next time you notice you're caught in wanting, no, not just a came and go, but you're caught in it, like wanting to look at somebody or something that's not huge, not the biggest one in your life that you're thinking about, but some little one that comes up here. I heard several people today, I must say, discussing where they like to sit at lunch. And it sounded like they all like to sit in the same place. <laughs> I'm hoping that's not true. <laughs> that's how it sounded. Okay, that's a good place to just look at the clinging. If it's coming up, it may not, but when it's coming up, and you just, or you're walking and you want to look, or go have tea, anything like that, but that you can really feel the thirst coming up, the wanting, the world narrows, instead of just the walking, it's all about, you know, the milkshake, it's all about the tea, it's all about that place at the picnic table. So just stand there, or sit there, And with awareness, just generally, let the wanting just do its thing. Just let it run itself out. See how it feels in the body. See how it acts in the mind. See what goes on. See if you're going to die from it. Probably not. And at some point, I promise, at some point, whether wisdom comes in or not, at some point it will go away. It might come back again but it will go away because everything goes away. It will go away. Keep paying attention when you turn back and see. Stay with it until it's gone and then see what's going on in the mind and heart. Unless another wanting arose in a split second, if there's some space, some quiet, you might notice the peace, the comfort, ah, the ease, the peace that comes when the mind and heart is awake and present and free from clinging. Ah, this is the peace we wanted in the first place. All this hoo-ha, to think it's making me happy, but it's just to get rid of the wanting. And here is available 24-7. So it's really worth exploring, turning around. The peace is right here. The Buddha is talking to some nuns talking to someone about praising her mindfulness, said her mind remains firmly established in mindfulness, and thus her mind is unbounded. She knows in truth that liberation of the heart, that liberation by wisdom. So even just for a moment, maybe it's not completely unbounded, but notice the difference between that tunnel vision on looking or the seat or whatever it is and ah just the peace of presence without any reference point unbounded because there's not a reference point of anything of me and other it's just thisness wakefulness just 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 notice that ananda maya so this is from a different tradition but she was kind of um 
you know, an Indian saint. She was, she was laughing. People were saying, oh, you're such a great renunciate. She said, so this is using different language, right? But she says, it's you who are the renunciates, renouncing the great joy of divine presence. Yes, I'll pick wanting over the great joy of divine presence any day. And we do, again and again and again. Now, in terms of this exploring when the wanting comes up, sure, there's, there's times, plenty of them. When you're mindful and present, but the wanting is just so strong, you can't not follow it. Have you seen that happen? And we're talking, again, we're not talking about big harmful things, hopefully the precepts, but just, you're just minding your own businesses. I remember years ago, no, no one here, I don't think it's anyone here, was telling me they were walking past the, uh, the food tables. I guess after breakfast or sometime, the meal was over and there was a bowl of fruit there and they weren't aware of really wanting the fruit. But as they walked by, their hand just shot out and grabbed an orange. And I was, whoa, <laughs> that's not me. You know? Bionic arm or something, nothing to do with me. So sometimes it's like that. But other times we can see it like that, wanting to look. You know, you just, just, you just can't bear it. So you look. Okay, bring awareness along with you when that happens. Don't think, oh, I blew it, so don't pay attention. No, bring awareness along with you. Still, notice, as Tejaniya says, notice how wanting does its job. Notice how craving is doing its job. Its job is to you know, lead you by the nose like the hound dog. Notice what the effect is. Keep on paying attention. Like when I was giving the example of looking, if you keep paying attention, you do it enough. It's pretty obvious. It's not really very supportive of anything other than distractibility and, and more um, anxiety in the mind. Sooner or later, the penny drops if there's steady attention. If there's not, we stop paying attention when it's not going how we want. We don't get the chance to see. That's why the steady attention, the natural awareness reveals the truth. All right. Well, talking about attachment to views and attachment to Sakaya Ditti, each of which is a whole Dhamma talk. So I'm not going to, I'm going to just mention two lines about each. I'm pretty sure Brian's going to talk about uh, views. Is that true, Brian? Huh? Maybe. If he doesn't, one of us will. (laughs) And the same with Sakaya Ditti. I mean, I can talk about that forever. So I just want to mention it. Views, this is huge. Attachment to views. What do we mean? What does the Buddha mean by views? It's like really it's thought. A thought of this is how it is, and attached to it. So he describes it as thinking, this alone is true, everything else is false. Unfortunately, our views don't quite, that's how we feel, but it doesn't quite come that clearly said. But of course we have views and opinions. It's not saying don't have them. Same as not appreciate sense pleasures, but the attachment to it. I don't think I have to go very far to, to just say how that is in the world with politics, with property, with, with uh, religion, with all kinds of views, the suffering, the anger, the hatred that comes from that. I just want to briefly mention in terms of what we can explore here on the retreat, attachment to views, views of how practice should be, how your practice should be. I, 
I'd be really surprised if there was someone here who didn't have some views like that. But often they hide from us. We're not really recognizing you have a view and you'll be in some feeling of dis-ease or discomfort or you're in struggle with what's going on. You come in and report to, you know, the interview teacher, you know, what's going on and how bad it is. And we're like, well, that's just what's happening. You know, what's the problem? But it should be like this. It should be like that. That's the view. The breath should be like this. How often I should be with the breath. Choiceless awareness, choiceless attention is really the higher practice. Choiceless attention is for lazy people. And really being with the breath is the appropriate practice. How it was that last sitting, that was it. I finally got it. And now it's not happening, so it's all gone to hell. But often these views aren't really, we're not saying, we don't quite recognize it, but we're really in conflict because we're attached to it. A lot of the self-judgment that Jill spoke about can arise from something unpleasant that's happening, but often it's from a view that there's attachment to, that we really believe it's true that we're not recognizing. And sometimes, you know, they can be changing. You see through one, oh, I get it. That was just a view. Now I know how it is. I watch the mind do that all the time. Once I was practicing in Burma and I was doing walking meditation, it was fine. Everything was fine. And I just started to notice a little dis-ease. It's not quite right. And I stopped and said, okay, what's the thought in the background there? Just got quiet and just opened the awareness and just saw. And it came up. It comes up because, oh, it should be better. That was the view I was attached to. That's a hopeless one. It should be better, whatever that means. And I was suffering from it because of the conflict with what's going on. So this, I just want to mention this to just tune into. Views a perception, and immediately there's a thought about what that person's doing or what it means or what's happening, and then right away there's a view and an attachment to it. As you can see, this is a huge topic, but I just want to bring it up to start to tune in. When you're feeling a sense of struggle with experience, but you think you're present, just check. Is there some idea that we really, I'm really believing how it's supposed to be in practice right now? And then just look at seeing it, bringing it into the light of day is really helpful, the light of awareness. Okay, and Sakaya, so ditti is the word for view. Sakaya ditti means personality view. And it's really, uh, again, this is a huge talk, I'll only just mention. It's taking in a moment, because it arises and passes moment to moment like everything, is in a moment taking any aspect of experience, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, sense experience, any of the mental, taking it as me or mine. And it's really a, a grasping. It's a, a sense of, of, of uh, craving, leaning into, and then grasping. Whether it's my um, hearing, my aversion, my sensation, just the whole a sense of me, all the thoughts that we have. I think Jill talked about it a lot last night, describing ourselves. But they can come and go and just be empty. But when there's the clinging to yeah, that's really true. And she would say, I really am such a, an angry person. And clinging to those thoughts and not noticing the others, for example. Sakaya Ditti. I talked a little bit about that 
when I spoke about impermanence last week, about my friend who everyone was telling her she's an aversive person. That's Sakaya Ditti, yes. Those aversive thoughts are who I am. That's me. Assuming that there's any kind of uh, unchanging, steady-state entity here, rather than, yes, arising thoughts and feelings and sensations changing and arising and changing in every moment. So when she sat down and looked, that's what she saw. Not a big ball of solid aversion, this is who I am, unchanging. Even the body, when you sit and feel sensations coming and going, coming and going, this is my knee. It's very different. Get a feeling for the difference when there's just thoughts coming and going and suddenly it's like that memory when I was in Girl Scout camp, now that's me. And you get a whole sense of me, an idea, through your whole life, but it's just a thought that's coming up now and there's grasping at it. Sakaya Ditti, coming and going. So, I mean, this is like incredibly brief for something that's very complex, but I'll just put it out. Explore it. Play with it. It's another time when we're feeling kind of stuck. And for us, a lot of time here, it'll be with thoughts, with memories, with descriptions of ourselves, like I'm an angry person, I can't meditate, or, you know, I should be more with the breath, or I don't have any concentration, or take your pick, you know, I'm hopeless, all the stuff Jill was saying. Or, as I was saying to someone today, you know, I'm going to be the next Dalai Lama. You know, that's the other side of it. It's going so good. This is really how it's going to be. That's the same, Sakaya Ditti. It just doesn't matter what the story is. It's that grasping, the holding to it. Watch. It's really fun to watch when you bring in mindfulness, wisdom, and see it's a process arising and passing, and it isn't personal. As soon as we're clinging, it feels personal. What do you mean it isn't personal? It's me, right? But then watching the process come and go, how can that be me? There's just a seeing, and it's pleasant or unpleasant, And there's a thought, look at how they're walking. They're walking so well, and I can't even put one foot in front of the other without getting lost in thought. And it's the third week. Why don't I just hang it up? (laughs) Notice that. What triggered that? Just seeing and unpleasant. Then you remember all the thoughts of how useless you've been in all these years of meditation and before, back to kindergarten, everything bad. Sakaya Ditti. And then you forget about it, right? Because you get lost in another thought. And then you wake up and you oh, it's so nice. I feel the grass. I feel the wetness. The breeze. I'm so present. It's so lovely. I'm so awake and aware. It's amazing. I am going to be the next Dalai Lama. <laughs> Sakaya Ditti. And we're thinking it's the same me, you know. What? Where's there's the same me there? It's changing completely. Again and again and again. Really fun to explore. The me who needs that seat in the dining room where I can't possibly enjoy my lunch. The me that, if I just sit in this proper way and tilt my head like that and hold my hands like this, I'll have that great sitting like I had before. This is attachment to rites and rituals, by the way how to make it be a certain way. So I'm afraid I'm going to stop here because otherwise we'll run out of just be too much time. But these areas of grasping, just explore them. I'm just dropping it into explore. 
So I just want to read one thing from the Buddha about clinging. Agitation through clinging. I love this. How bhikkhus, practitioners, how is their agitation through clinging? Here, the uninstructed worldling, that's the putajana, who is not who is unskilled and undisciplined in their dhamma, regards form as self, or self as possessing form, or form as in self, or self as in form. He gives those four ways of identification. That form of hers changes and alters, right? You're feeling good, and then you get a headache. The form changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, her consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change of form. Agitation and a constellation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of form remain obsessing her mind. Because her mind is obsessed, she is frightened, distressed, and anxious, and through clinging becomes agitated. Can you relate to that at all? I hope so. I mean, we're doing this all the time. <laughs> Regarding feeling, you know, Vedana as self, perception as self, any volitional formation, any mental action as self, or consciousness, the knowing itself as self. And when any of those change and alter, when we're regarding it as a self, we become preoccupied with the change, agitation and a whole constellation of mental states born of preoccupation remains obsessing the mind. And we get all involved in what's the change and how can we fix it? Turn around and notice the clinging. Instead of getting into the whole story of what can I do? Oh, clinging is like this. Clinging feels like this. And I find for myself, even just coming into clinging feels like this already. The peace of steady mindfulness and wisdom starts to be palpably available. Clinging is like this. You don't have to fix it. Just really be with it. And just moment after moment, there's the opportunity to rediscover the nature of the non-deluded mind. To re-recognize, as Ajahn Amaro says, the peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of mind and body when it's not obscured by craving, clinging, confusion. So, thank you for your kind attention. <laughs>